Well, good evening, everyone. Glad that you are here. I invite you to open your Bibles to our new topic for the next three weeks, Lord willing, the book of Esther in the Old Testament. We studied recently the book of Ezra, and Brother John did a really good job of taking us through the book of Ezra as well as the short book of Haggai. Our plan is to spend three weeks, so tonight, the next, and the next week, uh, looking at Esther, and then we will go and examine the book of Nehemiah. And Brother Jonathan is scheduled to teach Nehemiah, he'll do a great job. All right, well, good to have you tonight. Uh, if you have the handout, uh, either in email form or in paper form, we're not going to really make reference to it, but I really appreciated John providing that. Uh, he had it up on the screen the last few weeks. Uh, it's, it's a timeline that gives us some historical context to where Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah kind of fit in because they're all kind of contemporaries in this hundred plus year uh, account. Tonight we're going to talk about Esther chapters 1, 2, and 3. And I want us to start with the historical context, just a quick review. Sometimes we can, in my estimation, overdue dates and we can focus too much on those dates, but at the same time dates help us. And so as a history person myself, I like dates, I like knowing when things happened, but yet understanding why they happened and how they fit into the broader context is always more important than knowing what year something happened. So we talked about, and you uh, remember that John talked about that 539, and these dates are a little bit approximated. As we get closer to modern day, they get a little more exact, but sometimes they're off by a year or two because of a lack of historical records. But 539 was the uh, fall of Babylon. Cyrus, the, uh, the great, or Cyrus, the ruler, takes over and then begins this process of Jews returning back to Jerusalem, back to the homeland. Uh, and they go back, and what they find is that the temple is no more or that it is in ruins such that within just a couple of years, the temple project begins, which takes about a score of years. Uh, Darius, or Darius, takes power in 520. And then we fast forward almost 40 years later to approximately 486 when Ahasuerus takes power. And in most of our, new, in our, in our translations, the word Ahasuerus is used uh, the Greek word for that particular individual was Xerxes, and we, we like confusing people, and so not to be confused with Artaxerxes, who takes power later. And so sometimes we'll refer to him as Xerxes by his Greek name, but typically we'll use the name Ahasuerus, although he goes by another name that starts with a K, that I don't even know how to pronounce in the Persian language, so I'm not even going to try to show you how smart I am with the pronunciation of that. 478 is when Esther kind of bursts onto the scene as this new queen 
that we will talk about this evening when we get into chapter 2. It is a few years later that you see the Feast of Purim or Purim, uh, which we're going to maybe highlight just briefly tonight. That doesn't really take place until later in the story of Esther. And then just uh, to get us a little bit closer, around 444 is when Nehemiah comes onto the scene, 445, somewhere in there. So we have invested uh, an entire quarter, approximately, in really about 100 years worth of history, give or take a few of those years. So we're picking up in chapter 1 tonight. I trust that you've read um, chapters 1, 2, and 3, or at least that you are somewhat familiar with chapters 1, 2, and 3. Um, I was just talking with one of our sisters in the parking lot, and she said she sat down to read it, and she couldn't stop. She had to read all the way through the end of the book. And it is a very easy book to read in the sense that it doesn't get caught up in the trappings of genealogies and the way that some other Old Testament books do. It's a very easy read, and it's an enjoyable one. And it's one that even though you've read it maybe 20 or 30 times, you're kind of like, I wonder what's going to happen now. Uh, is, is it all going to turn out for good? Because things don't look very good come chapter 3 for the ancient people, the Jews. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to break down the text kind of in, in different minor sections, sometimes just looking at a verse or two at a time, sometimes looking at four, five, six, seven verses at a time. Uh, i got a couple applications for us, um, and then if you have comments that you would like to make, jot those down, and then I'll either email them out or we'll highlight them next week when we come together, Lord willing. Let's start here in uh, chapter 1. And in the first uh, six or seven verses, we find, uh, and let me, let me back up, we're going to call chapter one the pride chapter, because to me it's all about pride. It's the pride of a man who was boastful, who was arrogant, who was impetuous. Uh, he had a lot of qualities that are not very desirable, and we'll talk about that uh, in, at some point in our study tonight. But King Ahasuerus throws a series of these great banquets to display his wealth. And if you read through the book of Esther, if you've read through all ten chapters or you are already familiar with how the story ends, there are a series of six or seven different feasts or festivals or parties or celebrations that transpire. So you have some for the noblemen here, you have some for the military here, and then you have a feast or a festival for the women in this particular uh, context here. In fact, that's what comes in verse 9. Let's go ahead and read verses 8 and 9. Uh, verses 7, 8, and 9. They serve drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance. We'll highlight that in just a second. According to the generosity of the king, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to the king. Interesting that a full seven or eight verses are devoted to the feast for the men. One verse is devoted to the feast for the women. Just kind of an kind of interesting thing that appears in the text. Let's look and see what happens, though. We already probably have a glimpse. Even if you've never read this before, if you're reading this with those fresh eyes that we talk about sometime, mm, this doesn't look good. This looks like something bad could occur, something uh, 
off might transpire. On the seventh day, verse 10, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded a whole lot of people, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. Now, imagine if you are Vashti, and you get a knock at your door, and it says, The king wants you to come down so that we can all look at your beauty and be mesmerized by your radiance. Chances are your response is probably not going to be a positive one. You are, in many ways, objectifying the woman here. You're saying that she's just an object for visual pleasure. Uh, and she's probably not going to respond real well. And in fact, she does not respond real well. Which brings me to this kind of side point that I wanted to make in these two verses and why I read them. And that is pride and drunkenness and a whole lot of other ugly stuff that people get themselves involved in often go together. That when a person is too proud to admit that, you know, I, I might need help or I might need assistance, their drunkenness and their pride go well together. I was reading about this a couple of days ago and, and it struck me that we could then segue here and then spend a lot of time doing what Brother David did probably uh, seven months ago, six months ago, uh, in his sermon on drinking and the danger of drinking. But I wanted to just think of uh, three or four Proverbs. We'll just look at a couple of these here uh, and read these Proverbs with Ahasuerus in mind. Uh, some of these you're familiar with. Proverbs 20. If you go uh, in your Old Testaments to the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Well, whoever, if you want to circle that and write in the hazardous, is one of the many characters in the Bible who allowed drunkenness to get the best of him and make these rash, kind of impetuous uh, not well thought out choices or decisions. Then over in chapter 21, in verse 17, he who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Ironically, Ahasuerus has lined up these feasts for, among other purposes, to exhibit to all of his people, look how wealthy I am. Uh, these days, well... Got to be careful. Um, traditionally, people, got to be careful what I say here. Traditionally, people in power uh, don't want to talk about the wealth that they have because they want to identify with common folk, especially if you're in some sort of a democratic state. That has changed through time a little bit for various reasons, uh, partly because of explosion of wealth in the upper class. Uh, but here you have a situation where the more wealth you have, the more powerful you seem, and the more respect that you can demand from others, as was the case with the hazards. Uh, 23, verse 20 of Proverbs. 23 and verse 20 was the next one. 
do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. And then very late, 31, 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. So those are a handful of verses that you think of, at least I thought of, when you think about what Ahasuerus is doing on this particular occasion. Well, how does Vashti react? Well, um, how would you react? Whether you, even, even if you're not a woman, I think you can still identify and empathize with that request. Uh, Vashti says, ain't going to happen. Not going to happen at all. Verse 12, it says that Vashti refused to come to the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Notice that phrase, that he was anger or furious or that his anger or wrath burned within him. We're going to see that happen a couple of times in the text. Not always will it be the king reacting this way. It will be Haman who will react this way a little bit later in the story. Which brings me then to another kind of uh, pseudo-application that we can make from the New Testament, and that is anger is a dangerous thing. We know that there's such a thing as righteous indignation. We know that we are to be angry with ourselves and maybe even angry with others when there is sin. Uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus does not prevent or prohibit anger. It just says you've got to be cautious with it. But I put up there 1 Timothy 2 verse 8 where it talks about uh, in essence that when we pray, we ought to be careful not to allow our anger to get the best of us because otherwise our prayers could be hindered or in some way impacted. So this man, Ahasuerus, is coming out and is uh, providing us with a, a beautiful picture of himself, except the picture is not that beautiful. It's uh, kind of ugly who this man is really being. Uh, as we continue on into chapter 1, King Ahasuerus goes and he seeks some counsel from men uh, who were going to give him the kind of advice that he wanted. And this is a very uh, ancient thing, and in some ways it's modern, that we want to surround ourselves with people who will tell us what we want to hear when sometimes we need to willingly subject ourselves to individuals who will tell us the difficult things that we may not want to hear, but we need to hear. And so if you read verses 13 through uh, the end of the chapter, you find where he says, guys, what should I do? I'm so angry with Vashti, what she's done. She has disgraced me. Uh, what do you think about this? And in verse 16, as is typically the case, you see where exaggeration transpires. So what happens in verse 16? This individual answered before the king and the princes. It seems to be kind of a spokesman for the advisors or for the counselors. And he says, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of the, of, of, of the king. For the queen's behavior will become known to all the women so that they will, be, they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. My reaction to that is, come on. Really? You think the people are going to hear this message 
And all of a sudden, there's going to be this royal rebellion throughout the entire Persian Empire where all the women say, that's it, I'm done with my husband. You're not telling me what to do anymore. But that's the picture that they're painting. They're exaggerating and making this story sound worse than it really is. And then the other thing um, is everyone will rebel. All the women are going to be in the same boat. Well, what a, what a horrible thing to do, not only to, to women, but just to human beings, to generalize and to suggest that everybody's going to react the same way on this particular case. Compare the wise men's advice with the marriage instructions of Ephesians 5. So we're not going to read verses 21 through 33, 34 of Ephesians 5, but you're familiar with that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, or as in Ephesians 5, verse 22, um, as it says, not fitting in the Lord. Uh, and then drop down to verse 33, one of my favorite verses of Ephesians chapter 5, where it uses two words. He uses two verbs. He uses the, the verb respect, and it uses the word love. And there are some authors that wrote a book a number of years ago, and they called it the vicious cycle. That the less one partner respects the other, the less the partner is apt to love. The less you love, the less the respect. And it's just this vicious cycle that goes around and around and around. Whereas if you respect each other and you love each other, if you do those two basic things, you'll fulfill all the marital requirements and the pieces of advice that the Holy Spirit gives. So that's kind of an overview of chapter 1. It's all about King Ahasuerus, his pride, his uh, arrogance, his flaunting of his wealth. Then we get to chapter 2, where Vashti is now going to be removed from the scene. We never hear about her again. Secular history records uh, some interesting things about her that you can research on your own, where she probably landed and what probably ended up happening to her. But let's go to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is all about the new queen by the name of Esther. Now, Esther is the name that we call her uh, by, but uh, she is also known as a different name because she has a Persian name and she has a Hebrew name, and that is an individual by the name of Hadassah, the idea of meaning a star, or the name... Uh, Esther, uh, a particular plant, or I guess a tree, a myrtle tree. Someone did point out, I'm not taking credit for this, but that I don't know much about trees. I don't know much about horticulture stuff. I just pay for the water bill. Um, but um, myrtle trees have a blossom that maybe looks like a star. Someone suggested that. I thought that was kind of interesting. I wish I would have thought of that. Four years have passed uh, since Vashti. Uh, we see things are uh, delineated in terms of who does what when, as was the case in Ezra and as will be the case in Nehemiah. The advisors to King Ahasuerus hatch this plan. And they hatch this plan. They say, King, we've got a great idea. We've got rid of Vashti because she was going to create all these problems in the empire. Why don't we have, uh, I'm going to use the word contest, I'm going to use that loosely because it wasn't really a contest, but it was kind of contestable, uh, for a new queen. And the king, who is very quick to respond to his advisors, who always give him great advice, 
and provide him with wonderful counsel. He says, that sounds like a wonderful idea. So that in verse 4, uh, let's, let's go to verse 3. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, uh, or Susan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Let then the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti, and the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Which brings us then to verse 5. Probably, besides Esther, not probably, besides Esther, the most principal character or hero of the book of Esther. And that's an individual by the name of Mordecai. And Mordecai will go down in history as being a great man, a savior of the Jews in terms of, well, we don't get away too much of this story, so we'll stop right there. He, he's a good guy. So this is one of those things that make Esther such a great story, and I don't say story in terms of it being fictional or fable, but an account, because you have a villain, you have a good guy, you have a queen that gets wrapped up in it, you have hanging, you got all the good stuff that's going to happen here. Um, so we have the introduction to Mordecai in verses 5, 6, and 7. He was the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. We'll come back and talk about that. At, we're going to have to speed up. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father uh, nor mother. The young one was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own. So he is, it seems to be this... Uh, parent-like figure who provides for her, in essence, adopts her and cares for her uh, as his own. If we know nothing else about Mordecai, we already know that he's a good guy. Uh, in, without chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, we know that he's a good guy because of New Testament principles with which we are familiar, where true, pure religion is to take care or to visit not only widows, but also orphans. And so his character is one where he's showing himself to be the kind of person that James, some 500 years later, writes about in James chapter 1. Haggai, or Haggai notes Esther as special and shows providence of God. So if you wanted to get a theme of Esther, um, there's, there's, a, there's so many kind of sub-themes, but one of them is the taking care of people that God does behind the scenes in ways that are surprising and that go beyond our comprehension. Uh, Ephesians talks about that God is able to do abundantly above what we ask or imagine or think, and he's doing that here by using individuals. Which brings us to some questions that we might get into if we have a minute or two. But I want to read verses 8 and 9 real quickly here. The king's command and decree were heard when many young women were gathered at Chusan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace. Now the young woman pleased him, verse 9. She obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Apparently, there was something about the character 
of Hadassah or Esther that Haggai says, I'm going to give you some extra treatment. I'm basically going to give you uh, a leg up in this uh, thing that the king and his uh, counselors have concocted. Um, brings us then to the point that I wanted to make. I, I don't know the answers to this. Um, we know that Esther is Jewish. They, they asked me to teach this class so I could tell you that. We know that Mordecai is a Jew. But getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here in verses 10 and 11 and further, we also know that Ahasuerus, and it seems like pretty much everybody around them in political circles, doesn't know that they are Jewish. Right? They haven't figured that out yet. Once they figure that out, things take a real turn for the worse. Things get out of control by chapter 3. So the question is, is we know that there were Jews who were in exile who were still required to practice their faith. What was going on with um, Hadassah? What was going on with uh, Mordecai? And there's some different theories on that that's beyond the scope of our study. If nothing else, it reminds us that God sometimes takes people that don't fit the mold and make sense and he makes great sense out of them. One of the points would be is you look at every woman in the genealogy listed of Jesus and all five of them have sorted histories where you could claim something about them that was either negative or someone could, uh, uh, could suggest a rumor about them. So God uses Gentile people, probably the most famous, Rahab, right? to be a forerunner of Jesus. So God makes these choices that sometimes don't make sense to us, and sometimes the Bible doesn't tell us all of that information. But that brings us to verses 10 and 11. Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her to not reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So uh, you can appreciate uh, the anxiousness of a father figure, in this case Mordecai, um, well, spoiler alert, guess who gets chosen? Well, Hadassah, or Esther, gets chosen, and a celebration is ordered. These people like to celebrate, uh, and the king likes to throw big parties, and he's going to throw another one on this particular occasion. Uh, uh, and note, if you would, how Esther is Characterized. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's unit, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So, uh, in addition to her physical beauty, apparently there's something about her that makes her a spectacular person. Uh, a lot of times when you're doing studies of heroines in the Old Testament, in addition to looking at Esther, you look at Ruth. Even though they're in different time periods, they have some similarities and they have some striking differences as well. Um, but it's just interesting that they both possessed great character. Mordecai is granted then a position of authority near the king, presumably because of who the new queen is. 
So verses 19, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. We're not told how he got there, so we uh, can put two and two together and get four and see that probably the queen had something to do with that. And it says then in verse 20, Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had again charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. And then the last couple of verses, which we would like to take some time to really deal with, but we're not because I want us to get into chapter 3 and spend at least five to eight minutes there, is that Mordecai discovers, helps prevent this assassination plot. Uh, why they wanted to assassinate the king is not stated. Some have conjectured that they were, maybe it was someone who was unhappy with the choice of Esther over Susie. I don't know who, if there was an argument maybe that happened. But they were unhappy with the king. They wanted him dead. And so they tried to assassinate him. That didn't happen. And they were both hanged on gallows as it was written in the book of the Chronicles. Which brings us into chapter 3. The final chapter we'll spend uh, just a few moments here. Uh, 3 is probably uh, the chapter with which we are maybe most familiar. Uh, simply because everyone likes a good villain. Or everyone likes to dislike a, a villain. Maybe that's the way we like it here, is about Haman, the bad guy, the villain here. Uh, verse 1, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. What that means, I have no idea. How's that for an answer? Uh, there are two theories as to what it means that he is an Agagite or from Agag, uh, is that one, he was a uh, citizen or a resident of a particular location. And some say that's probably what it means. But the question is, not to get too far ahead of ourselves into chapter 3, is why does Haman, I'm sorry, why does Mordecai have such a strong constitution towards and, and strong reaction to the idea of paying homage to Haman. Mordecai says, I'm not going to bow down. And Haman, of course, loses it, burns hot with anger, there it is again, and his wrath. And why was that the case? There's a second theory, and that is that the word Agag here actually means Agag and goes back to the Amalekites, going all the way back to when Saul was charged with killing the Amalekites, remember? Remember, he did not do so. He gets himself into trouble over that. Ironically, if that's the case, think about this. Hang on just a second. Saul was a descendant of Benjamin, much like in similar form that... Uh, Mordecai is a descendant of Benjamin. So Saul doesn't satisfy the Lord in the command to utterly destroy the Amalekites. 1 Kings 15, I think, is what the case is. Some suggest that the reason that there is bad blood between them is because of the ancient blood that goes all the way back to the Amalekites. Whether that's the case or not, I have no idea. It's funny because uh, David and I were talking about this today. Um, uh, You'll, you'll look at, see what someone says. Eh, that makes sense, that this is the argument you, you should make. 
And then you, you look at someone else and they make an argument that is equally convincing on the other side. And so you're kind of left to say, well, and that brings us back to a point that we always remember in the study of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is that the secret things belong to God, Deuteronomy 29. There are things that we do not know. And fortunately, those are things that are not going to be necessary for us in order to please our God. But it is interesting to, to ask why this great animosity between them. Consider, if you would, the character of Haman as viewed through the lens of Proverbs 6. We're not going to take the time to read that because we are uh, going to run out of time in the next five or six minutes here. Um, but Proverbs 6 is where it talks about the six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination. And you look at all seven of those, and you want to look for a poster child of Proverbs 6, Haman seems to fit that pretty nicely, or pretty poorly, depending on how you want to, to, to word that. Um, verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, the king's servants would bow down and pay homage to Haman, but Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. So Mordecai refuses to pay homage to Haman. Um, now, some would say that the reason that he chose not to bow down to Haman was because of his ancestry and the bad blood. Some suggest it's simply because he's not going to bow down to another human being. And I, I can live with that as well. Except there are a number of occasions in the Old Testament where godly men did pay reverence to another man in bowing down or paying homage as a political leader or as a king. Um, so I don't know what the case may be. So how's that? Uh, we're going to run out of time here. But let's look at chapters, uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Haman plans revenge and again goes to the king and says, King, what do you think about this plan? that we find this man as well as people who are like him. Look at verse uh, 8. Haman said to the king, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Again, a little exaggeration goes a long way. Their laws are different from all other peoples. They do not keep the king's laws and so let it please the king that they be destroyed. And in fact, I'll pay for it. In verse 10, the king took his ring, says, you've got my blessing. Um, verse 12, the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month. A decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, saying to the entire people, this is what's going to happen. They cast lots, or pur, P-U-R, which is where the Feast of Purim, or Purim, comes from. And to determine the day, because they believed in witchcraft and sorcery, and they had false gods and divinations, as did many ancient cultures. And they set the execution date for a almost full year later, when all of the Jews would be annihilated. Thought being that most of them would probably either... Many of them might leave or else they would choose to die. Either way, you get rid of the problem. Consider, if you would, the different reactions of who was involved. In verse 15, the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So what does the king and Haman and their compatriots do? Without even reading, what do you think they do? <laughs> you already know what they're going to do. Let's drink. 
I mean, that's what responsible leaders do, right? That's what responsible people do. We've got this great plan to kill a bunch of people, let's drink. I mean, you just think about Haman and you think about Ahasuerus and it's like one influences the other who influences the other who influences the other. I think we just discussed last Wednesday in the class that John led us in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that bad company corrupts good morals. And that's what's happening here. This is not good company. But then notice the very last part of verse 15 that I had never noticed before until I was reading this uh, again. The city of Shushan was perplexed. My understanding of that, my reading of that, I may be wrong, is that Haman and the leaders and those that were jealous of the Jewish people or envious of them uh, or angry with them, they rejoiced. But everybody else was like, where did this come from? Why? Why this decree? Where, where in the world? We did not see that coming. So let me close with these three takeaways. And there's more that we could discuss. If you have something you want to add, please do so. And I'll make sure that I add it into next week if I can, either electronically or up here. Um, three things that struck me. One is that humility requires effort. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. 1 Peter 5, verse 6, we sing that, we say that, we read that, we quote that. That requires effort. Real humility requires effort. And it was lacking in the, in the part of so many individuals in this story. Secondly, Satan is really wicked, and he will not limit his evilness. I mean, look at the last couple of sermons that David has done on the Sunday nights where he's talking about lamentations, and you get a picture of a people who are just completely destitute and deranged in some ways because of sin. Um, and sin takes us farther than we want to go and destroys us more than we think that we would be destroyed and all that ugliness. Satan is evil. There's nothing good about Satan. Nothing at all. And we see that here. And, thir and three, three, think before you act, not the other way around. Ahasuerus needed to read Proverbs 18, verse 13, among some other passages, to appreciate that, you know what? Let me take a day and think about this plan that was hatched when I'm not drunk. Maybe I'll think differently tomorrow morning. Things could have been a whole lot different, chapter 1 to chapter 2. Same thing with Haman and his plan. So those are just some things that I wanted us to discuss this evening. Appreciate your time so very much, your kind attention. And uh, again, we'll look at chapters 4, 5, and 6 next week, Lord willing. So if you would, read through those, and uh, we'll prepare for those. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. Live for Jesus. You know, Jesus is a New Testament concept, uh, but at the same time, he is a biblical concept. And as good Bible students, we already know that. Even though the word Jesus uh, is not used until the New Testament, Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament. And even though the people that were staying strong to the Lord in exile back in the days of Esther or Ezra or Nehemiah, even though they uh, were had so many reasons to give up on their faith, they still remained strong. And ultimately, 
to get ahead of ourselves a little bit, in the saving of the Jews, God's plan for Jesus was delivered. Because nobody was going to stop that plan. Once Genesis 3 rolled around and God said that I'm going to make this seed Jesus, and he's going to come to this earth, I mean, he was already made, because he was never made. Try to figure that out. Because he's eternal. But the idea that we live for him is something that people have been doing for thousands of years. And that's what we're asking you to do tonight. If you are not a Christian, if you're not a believer, if you are not a saint, then you are not saved. And consequently, your soul is in jeopardy. And we are asking for you to make whatever correction is necessary tonight. And that means becoming a Christian by being baptized. We'll do that this very evening. Uh, in the very hour in which you say, I'm ready to become a Christian, whether that be now, whether that be at 3 in the morning, whether that be at any point, we'll say we're ready to baptize you. If you believe in Jesus, believe as him being the Christ, and then confess his name having repented of your sins. If we can help you in that, or if you're a Christian tonight, Maybe your faith is not as strong as it needs to be. Uh, maybe your faith is not as strong as Esther or Mordecai. And you say, I need to improve on that. If it's private, do that by praying to God. If it's public in nature where you'd like for us to pray with you, we would welcome that opportunity. If we can help, let us know while we stand and while we sing at this time. <laughs>